Okay, this morning is July 17th. It is Sunday morning, and our topic this morning is one. O-N-E, one. Um, I was asked this week, not really asked, kind of the statement was made. Somebody was very concerned about an upcoming event, and uh, I said, and I thought about praying about that, but who, was I, who am I to do that? It was about the weather. And, you know, weather affects lots and lots of people, right? Have you ever considered that when you're praying for rain, somebody else might be praying against rain? And how do you reconcile all of that? And this person's point was, who am I to ask God to do anything? I'm just one person. So our topic is one this morning. But you all know I've been reading books on Hebraic roots lately, and I wanted to share something with you that I thought would bless you. Probably the most central creed to all of Judaism uh, all the way back, at least as far as the Babylonian captivity, but certainly from then forward, is Deuteronomy 6.4. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, God, the Lord is one. You want to hear that in Hebrew? You get to learn this in Hebrew. We're going to learn little tidbits here and there because I want to go to Israel next year. Uh, hear, O Israel, is Shema Yah Israel. Shema Yah Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Isn't that pretty? The Hebrew language is beautiful. If you're trying to figure out what those words are, Shema is here. Yah Israel, O Israel. Adonai, the Lord. Eloheinu, our God. Adonai, the Lord again. Echad is one. Shema Yah Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. This is something that is a creed to Judaism. God is one. But the Hebrew language is so beautiful and so rich that reformers like Martin Luther wrote about it. They said, never has there been a language like this that with so few words could express so much. I've been teaching the Hebrews teach functionally. They teach according to the way things work. They're not like the Greeks that record everything simply based on logic. Well... The word one in Hebrew, ikad, means several different things. Now, when you think of one, what's the very first thing you think of? A numeral, right? But in Hebrew, when you speak of ikad, when you speak of one, it can mean a multiple that acts as one. In other words, Israel went to fight as one man. That term one would mean that a collective was acting as one. Does that make sense? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. Is He the numeral one? Well, yes. Is He have multiple parts that could be one? Yes. See, it's a term pregnant with meaning. Does that make sense to you? You praise Him back there, Abigail. That's my daughter. That's my daughter back there. I didn't know I'd ever have one of those. Well, I'm telling you about Hebrew and about it being vivid because it plays into our message today. But before I tell you that, I want to let you know as I'm learning some of these things, finding out that we miss some things in English. And I'm not telling you this so that it would be esoteric and you feel like you could never learn or study or understand. I'm telling you because this is how God intended us to see it. And the more we learn and study, the more we'll see it. In the Hebrew Bible, they wrote like poets. This is beautiful. You don't get this in English. Many times, the meter of their words, how many syllables was in a given line that they wrote, indicated the intensity with which they were trying to portray words. The shorter, the choppier they were, 
the more heated you were supposed to read it, the more passionate it was supposed to be. As they lengthened them, it would cause reverence and contemplation and those things. And when that's translated into English, because we have different numbers of syllables and things, we don't begin to see that. Does that make sense to you? Well, one such place is, have you ever heard Isaiah spoke? He said, line upon line and precept upon precept, do's and don'ts. This, this is what you've made my law, God said. Well, several national ministries have built upon this idea as if it were a good thing. Line upon line and precept upon precept do we teach the word. Each one, y'all remember literary terms, and I remember them, but didn't pay much attention to them. Onomatopoeia was a literary term that you learned in high school and maybe as a freshman in college. Another might be uh, iambic pentameter, having to do with the speed and the way that words were arranged. The way that that prophet arranged these words was so that each letter of each word began the Hebrew alphabet. The first word began with the equivalent of A, the second with the equivalent of B, and the third with the equivalent of C. Furthermore, they rhymed. So that literally what he was saying is, you've reduced my law to the A, B, C, D, E, F, G. He's saying you reduced it to something that children would just sing as a part of rote memorization instead of feeling what it meant. This is why he later says, and as much as your lips speak to me, your hearts are far from me. Does that make sense? Well, these are things that we can get out of the text as we study that we might miss in English. In Hebrew, for example, a couple words before we get into our text. To lift your eyes up, because the Hebrews were a vibrant people. Contrast this with the Greeks for a minute. Greeks, we get the word stoic from stoicism, something that Greeks practice. What is it if someone is stoic? What does that mean? It means that they're not moved towards pleasure or pain easily. Somebody who's very stoic in nature may handle pain very well. I've heard it used that way before. Wow, he's very stoic. You don't see him present pain. The Hebrews were not this way at all. This was a Greek mindset that you put on a facade for everybody to see. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. The Hebrews expressed their emotions with their words and in life. This is why you see King David dance in the streets of Jerusalem in his underwear and happiness and mourn when his child is dying for an entire week. That's why you see Jesus joyful and you see Jesus weeping in the Scripture. They didn't have any concern with facades. Boy, the church could learn a lot just from that very statement. They were fully human. I've been asked questions an awful lot recently about why in the Bible things like Abraham giving away his wife, Lot's daughters doing horrible things with him, why were these things included in the Bible. The Bible embraces all of humanity. It embraces weaknesses and it embraces strength. And you know what that's supposed to do? Give you hope when you see yourself failing. It's supposed to give you hope. They were men and women just like us. We have a tendency to look back in the Scripture and say, oh, well, back when God spoke to people every day or back when God did those things, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what the Bible declares. The way people relate to Him might be different. You might be taught differently than someone else. But the Hebrews were very vibrant people. Listen to some words in their language. Then we'll move on to our message. Lift up thy eyes. That's how we translate this English phrase. You know what that means to a Hebrew? Lift up thy eyes. Look. <laughs> Look. You'd say, 
If someone was angry, you know what you'd say? What the expression is that means angry? You'd think it'd just be a word, angry, right? No, it's a word that means burning in your nostrils. Because when you're really angry, that's a sensation that you might get. Another one is if you wanted to say that somebody uh, really heard what you had to say or it had been revealed to them, you'd say their ears were unstopped. These very functional, vibrant ways to express things were meant to convey a picture to you, a picture of a people, a picture of a culture, so that we would understand what God's freely given us. Here's one. I used to read this and kind of snicker as a little boy trying to figure out why God said this to Job. If you wanted to tell you, get ready. If you wanted to tell you, brace yourself, gird up your loins. Because <laughs> if a guy was going to battle, if you were getting ready to do something important, you'd protect yourself, right? Last one. Okay, last one that I'll teach you this morning. I'll try to do some of these each week. If you're really determined, you know what you'd do? The Hebrew word is set your face. So-and-so set his face like flint in the direction and was unwavering in his resolve to set his face. I say all of this because in the Hebrew language, one word can be pregnant with several meanings. It's beautiful in that regard. So, File that in the back of your mind. I'm going to read you a Hebrew phrase one more time, then we're going to get into our message. And I promise all of this relates. Shema Ya Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, or the Lord God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. This morning our topic is one. Anybody have an idea what the most mentioned number in the Bible is? I bet you do now that I've given you the title of the message, huh? If you were thinking about this, though, how, what number was mentioned more than any other time in the Bible? Wouldn't you think that it would be seven since you've heard seven's perfection? Or twelve since twelve shows up so many times? Wouldn't you think that that would be the case? You know how many times seven's in the Bible? Only 374 times. You know how many times twelve is in the Bible? I mean, there's twelve tribes. There's twelve Arab tribes, twelve Jewish tribes. There's twelve... Over and over and over. Twelve apostles. How many times in all of the Bible is twelve? A hundred and sixteen times. So how many times do you think one is in the Bible? One hundred? Two hundred? Three? Four? Five? Six? A thousand? Two thousand? It's twenty-two hundred and sixty-nine times the word one appears in the Bible. There's not anything else that is remotely close. One seems so insignificant to us, and yet it's a part of the creed of Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. One seems like, what can one do? I'm only one among so many. One is small. It's meaningless. It's insignificant. Well, in the Hebrew, it was pregnant with meaning. One was not an insignificant thing. One was not the loneliest number, as the song said in the 60s. One could be powerful. Let's examine this thought for a minute. Turn to Genesis 6. One. Y'all going to stay awake for me this morning? I don't want to be one up here, alone and crying. <laughs> Genesis 6. In your Thompson chain, if that's what you have, it's page 6. That's not all that hard to find then, huh? Genesis 6 starting in verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah, a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. Noah had three sons, 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make it with rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Out of all of the people on the planet, out of all of humanity there, God spoke to one person to make preparations to save a remnant of the human race. Look at what Noah did in Genesis 6, starting in verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Because one man before God's ways seemed right. Because one man did what God told him to do. The human race was preserved. But what can one man do? I mean, you feel all alone. You feel small and insignificant. And even as I read this to you about Noah, you say, well, yeah, but the Bible says he was righteous. He was unique in all of the earth. If you knew what I did yesterday or last night or last year, you might not say these things to me, Eric. The Bible says one man on the earth because he was obedient to God. One saved the entire human race. Turn with me to Genesis 12. Noah was one righteous man who saved the remnant of the human race through his obedience. But what can one man do? In Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Here's a promise to one individual, one man. And he came from the Chaldees. I mean, we're talking about a wicked area. In fact, his father was an idolater, Joshua said. Did you know Abraham's father, Terah, was an idolater? Sometimes we think, well, what can I do? Look at where I come from. Maybe you don't even know who your dad is. All kind of reasons that you could feel small. You could feel insignificant. And what can I do? Why would God want me? What do I have to offer? Every reason in the world that the devil's thrown dirt on you and found a way for it to stick. And yet God chose one man to bless every nation on earth through. wonder why He chose this man. Turn to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, verse 18, on page 17. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and keep his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. 
You're kidding me, right? Abraham gave away his wife not once, but twice. Abraham slept with somebody who was not his wife and produced a child that has become an enemy of Israel. So what could God do through this man? Abraham's father was an idolater. He's trash and he comes from trash, someone might say. Now, I'm sure nobody in here fits into that description. What could God do through this one man? Well, if this one man will decide to be a starting point, if he'll be a launching block, if he will be different than those that were around him and teach his children to do so, then God can build a nation through him, the holy nation of God. Turn with me to Romans real quick. Let's see how Abraham's life profited him and his children. I'm only one, Lord. Romans 4 in the Thompson chain is on page 1252. I would love to read you the whole chapter, but I don't want to lose you in my words this morning. Look at verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. God chose one man on the planet, one who was willing simply to do what God said to do. Was he full of flaws? Oh, absolutely. Flaws unlike Anything that you might be personally familiar with. The guy gave his wife away. Was he full of flaws? Oh, yeah. He was raised in the house of an idolater. Was he fully obedient in every case to God? Not any more than you are. And yet, because God knew that this one man would teach his children the right things he learned from God, God said, I'll be able to accomplish through this one man what I intend to do. This plays out over 2,000 years between Paul and Abraham so that Paul says, you know what? You know who Abraham's children are? They're everybody who does what is right because it's through Abraham we learned about righteousness. He's the father of all who believe. But what can God do with one man? Through Noah, He saved a remnant of the human race. Through Abraham, with one man, we built the nation of God. But who are you? I mean, just one person. Turn with me to Judges. To go to Judges, you'll need to hang a left. As you're reading in your Bible, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. We're going to be in the 16th chapter. In the Thompson chain, that would be page 286. One man. wonder why one is mentioned so many times in the Bible. Two is in the Bible 600 times. Three is in the Bible 358 times. Four, only 219 times. Five, only 202 times. Six, the number of sin. Oh, the Bible's to show you how bad you are, right? How much you sin. The Bible's to beat you down, show you how unworthy you are, right? Six, the number of sins, only in the Bible, 117 times. But one, the power of one's illustrated 2,269 times in the Bible. 
But what can God do through you, I wonder? You're in Judges 16, starting in verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Now tell me, what do you know about Samson? Samson was a man who was uniquely born. He was born supernaturally. His mother and father couldn't have children. And God ordained that this child would be born for the purpose of delivering Israel from the Philistines. But Samson had a little problem, didn't he? Samson had a love for a foreign, for foreign women, actually. In fact, at this point in Samson's life, we have the great hero of God, the man who was supposed to deliver all of Israel from the Philistines, blind, eyes put out, a prisoner in the house of a foreign god. wonder what God could do through this one man. I mean, he's a failure, right? He's blown it. He's lost his eyeballs because he wasn't doing what was right. Have you never sinned and thought, what, how could God use me? I mean... Look at me. I'm a failure. Have you never been under the power of condemnation? Feel like you're a slave to some foreign god because of the good that you want to do and just can't do? Or how about the bad that you don't want to do and you keep on doing? What can God do through you? Samson, what a failure, right? Verse 24, When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste the land and multiplied our slain. little gloating, huh? While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. That's what the world wants to do to you. It wants to imprison you. It wants to show you that you are under the same demonic power that they are. And then while you are blind and imprisoned, it wants to make sport of you. The same little kids on the playground that urge you, hit him, hit him. Don't let him talk to you like that. Hit him and begin a fight are the same ones that laugh at you when you can't get up when the fight is over. That's the spirit of the world. They're mocking Samson. They're making fun of Samson. Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support this temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple... Interestingly enough, is that really true what Samson said? He may have just fibbed just a little bit here, didn't he? It's amazing how many times that shows up in the Bible as an act of faith. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O Sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood bracing himself against them, his right hand one on, on one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all of his might. And the temple came down on the rulers and all of the people in it. 
Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Samson ended up ruling Israel 20 years. What can one man do? One blind, imprisoned man. He had been disobedient to God. And yet this one man's final act of his life liberated an entire nation. Noah lived in such wicked times that he was declared to be the only righteous man on the earth. And that one man saved his whole family and indeed the human race. Abraham, the son of an idolater. A man who showed such extreme cowardice at times that he put his wife in another man's bed to save his neck. A man that showed such lack of faith at times that he left his wife's bed for another woman because he didn't believe God could give her a child. And yet he became the father of everyone who believes. Samson, somebody born for a mighty purpose, but such an utter failure that he ended up blind and imprisoned in the house of a foreign god. And yet, the dying act of this man, this one who believed and said, God, remember me just once more, liberated an entire nation. He's just one man. What could he do? You're just one person. What could you do? Let's move on to David. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. You'll make a right from the book of Judges and find 1 Samuel is not far. David was just a kid. He was a boy. Somewhere between 13 and 18, I would guess. Just a kid. An entire nation was quaking with fear because there was a giant. Not only one man that was a giant, but a nation that seemed like a giant to them. In some ways, technologically more advanced. In some ways, physically more advanced. Numerically, more advanced. So if you had to pick one man to confront that nation, if you had to, con- to, to pick one man who would inspire your people, surely you'd pick someone great, right? And yet David was declared to be just a kid. Not even old enough to wear a man's armor yet. Not even just one man. Somebody you might declare to be less than a man. But let's see how his life turns out. Start in verse 40, since you all know this story so well, of chapter 17. After Saul tries to put his armor on David and it finds out it's too big. Judah's trying to wear Bobby's clothes and they just don't fit right because he's not quite a man yet. Verse 40, Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield-bearer in front of him. This Philistine is over nine feet tall, has been a fighting man since his youth, never been defeated, a champion. And it's not just him. He has somebody... His shield is so big, he has somebody carrying his shield for him. The head of this guy's spear weighed 120 pounds. His sword was probably so big that it took all of your strength just to lift it. And who does God choose to go face him? Somebody less than even a man. Just one little boy. He kept coming closer to David. Verse 42. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy. 
ruddy and handsome. It's good looking like you, Judah. And he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you have come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. This Philistine was insulted that when Israel sent somebody out to fight him, it was a child. It was a child. And even the child didn't come with a sword. He came with a stick in rocks. He was insulted and he despised this one person. Who are you? What can one man do? Come here, he said. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. This is one of those stories that we read. And it sounds neat, right? Don't forget, there was a 14, 15 year old kid standing out here doing what an entire army of Israelites would not dare to do. And when insulted, when intimidated, when told that he would be fed to the birds of the air, he replies by talking some serious smack, doesn't he? Now, this could be for two reasons. It could be because he's frightened out of his mind and he's bluffing. Or it could be because he believes that one man can make a difference. Just one. Let's see how it turns out for David. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran. Uh-oh, here's our chance. He's running from the battle, right? He turned around and took off the other way. Oh, I must have misread that. David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with sling and stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. He killed him and cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath at the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sherarim road to Gath and Ekron. One little boy who did what God told him to do changed the course of a nation. Israel would have become subject to the Philistines that day if David had not stood up as one. This one child inspired a nation. When they saw what he did, what did they do? They rallied and surged forward where before they had shrunk in fear. Noah saved the human race through his obedience. Abraham, though a flawed human being, was a starting place, a launching point for the nation that would become God's. Samson, though he had many failures in his life, liberated an entire nation through one final act of obedience. 
doesn't matter how far you've fallen. You can say, Lord, just once more, will you touch me again? David, an insignificant little boy, in the midst of warriors, too small even to carry their armor, but believed God. One boy inspired a whole nation. Read you one you might not know real quick. Turns me to Second Chronicles 30. To get to Second Chronicles, you'll t- continue to move towards your right in the Bible. The 30th chapter is pe- found on page 513. Hezekiah. Starting in verse 1, Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. Now, those of you that are Bible scholars in here, what is wrong with celebrating a Passover in the second month? The Bible declares emphatically that the month that the Passover is to be celebrated in is to be for them the first month. Because when God brought Israel out of Egypt, He started their calendar all over again. He said, today for you is to be the first day. Just like when you got born again, it was just like your life began again that day. Though you did all kind of wicked things, they'd no longer be counted against you. But we're doing this in the second month. Have men been killed in the Bible for less than this? Yeah, Hophni and Phineas got killed for something that was not this bad of a deviation. So what do you think happens? Turn with me to verse 18. These people came from all over Israel to answer Hezekiah's call to celebrate the Lord's Passover. And other than in the days of Josiah, Passover had never been observed like it should be observed. God said to do this year in and year out. It would typify the Christ that you and I have come to worship. It would teach Israel about God and be a symbol for all of the world to see. And Israel had failed to do it. See, I'm just one person. And Eric, if you really knew, my family's not all that cool. And, man, I'm full of failures. Do you know how I blow it all of the time? I'm little. I'm insignificant. God can't use me. And even if I wanted to try, I wouldn't know quite how to do it. Hezekiah was performing this on the wrong month. He wasn't even getting it right. And yet his heart, this one man's heart, causes favor to come anyway. Although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover, contrary to what is written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord, who is good, pardon everyone who sets their heart on seeking God. The Lord, the God of his fathers, even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people." They weren't doing it right. They didn't get it right. It had not been done right in Israel in a very long time. But this man's heart's desire was to bring people 
back to God. In fact, the Levites saw what was going on. These priests who were supposed to know the written instructions of God. And they repented because they saw commoners worshiping God and they had not been worshiping God. This one man caused a whole nation to be healed. He caused a whole nation to begin to serve God in a right way. And you know what? He himself didn't even do it right. So why did God honor him, I wonder? What is it about Hezekiah that impressed God? Look at the end of verse 31, starting or chapter 31, verse 20. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commandments, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. So he prospered. So my father's an idolater. I'm just a kid. I'm weak and insignificant. Eric, I've been so wounded in the kingdom. I've been so beat down through my misgivings that I don't even know where to begin. Even if I wanted to get it right, I wouldn't know how to start. One man who served God wholeheartedly caused an entire nation to repent. And did you hear? Be healed. They were under a plague. They were under sickness because they had not been doing it right. And He caused them to be healed. We don't even need to cover Elijah, do we? How many times have I preached on 1 Kings chapter 18? One man stood against the nation. One man filled with the Spirit of God and said, How long, Israel? How long will you waver between two opinions? One man caused all of Israel to repent. He put to death the false prophets and brought rain after seven years. One man did that. But who are you? Who am I? Just weak, insignificant little people, right? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. This message was burst out of the thought, who am I to pray? Who am I to ask God to do anything? I'm just one person. There might be a thousand over there asking for rain and I'm praying and asking God for no rain. Who am I to do that? What is it about me? How dare I ask God for anything? I'm just a man. How could I presume to have fellowship with the Almighty? What am I? What is man that you are mindful of Him? What is the Son of Man that you would consider Him? What is just one person? Could God use just one person? In Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20, this is on page 1279. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Anybody know what Christ means? What does Christ mean? The anointed one. Oh, one. In the anointed one, all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, that's the anointed one, 
the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. God anointed one man and said, anyone who listens to this one man will have life. Well, wonder why that would be. I mean, he's just one. After all, what is one? Do you remember when I taught you the Shema earlier? How did it go? Shema, Ya Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu. Adonai, Ehad. What was Ehad? One. And in a Hebrew's mind, one could be the numeral one, couldn't it? But what else could one imply? Diversity within the group, acting collectively. Ehad could imply that one was made up of many members. In fact, we see of the term Christ in the New Testament. He's called the Anointed One, and yet you are members of His body acting as the Anointed One. See, when we say, what am I? What am I? I'm just one man. You are never just one. Because there's a friend that sticks with you closer than a brother. Let's see what Jesus knew that sometimes we lose perspective of. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. In John 5, page 1182. Jesus gave them this answer. Verse 19. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. But wait a minute. Is it the Father or is it the Son? Because we just read that in Christ, the one man, all who are in Christ will be made alive. So is it the Father or is it the Son? Turn with me to John 10. A few pages to your right. Starting in verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you this. Hey man, are you the Christ or not? Quit holding us in suspense. Tell us plainly. Who are you? We see you're just a carpenter. We see you're just one man from Galilee. Who are you? What's the deal? Tell us the truth. We're here asking. We're sick of asking. Tell us. Tell us plainly. Verse 25. I did tell you, but you did not believe me. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now in Greek, it's not ichad. It's another word. But Jesus was not a Greek. He was a Hebrew. 
And when he said we're one, he meant we're the numeral one. But it could be made up of many parts. What he was saying is he and his father were in perfect agreement. He was doing just what John 5.19 said. Exactly what he saw his father doing. So what does it mean to be one? Is one insignificant? No, one can be absolutely all you need if you're full of the power of God. If you're in God's will. He said, but this was Jesus. Well, (laughs) what about Noah? What made Noah's obedience so awesome? What made Noah's obedience something that saved the human race from destruction? It's what God told him to do. So what difference could one make? Well, one that is obedient could save the entire human race. Well, what about Abraham? We've already said that he was the son of idolater, that he was a coward, that at times his faith showed great failings. So what is it that Abraham, the one man, did that made him the father of the faithful? Just what God told that one man to do. He believed, and so it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, what about Samson? Samson's a failure, right? A keeper of prostitutes. Shunned by his religious community. Handed over to the enemy many times. Had his eyes put out of his head because of his disobedience. Did the very things God told him not to do. And yet he said, God, would you be with me one more time? And so ultimately he was successful. Even if it was in the end. How about David? Just a boy. His brothers accused him of being a liar, arrogant, with a wicked heart. Eliab, his brother, said all of those things about him right before he went to the battlefield. What made David special? When he faced the Philistine, he said, you're coming against me with a spear and a sword and a javelin. I'm coming against you with God and the armies of the Lord. He understood that he was never really alone. That though he stood there as one unit, he was filled with God. What about Hezekiah? Ceremonially, he didn't get it right. According to the letter of the law, he should have died and so should have everybody else. But his heart was moved to obedience from God. He served God wholeheartedly, trying to do what God commanded. Friends, the Bible says, be holy for God is holy. And yet he realized when he asked you to do it, you were incapable of it. You know what he was looking for? Effort. We're such a passive people. We sit and we watch TV to be entertained. We pay people to do anything that's hard in our lives. We sit most of the time. All God wants you to do is get off of your salvation for a minute and try. The difference between sheep and goats in the Bible had nothing to do with what they believed or didn't believe. It had everything to do with giving a little effort for God. You'll find out God never punishes you for failing. He punishes you for failing to try. It doesn't matter if you've been a whore your whole life, or a drug dealer, or some abominable thing, a tax collector, a publican. These are the people that Jesus hung out with because any one of them standing with Him could make a difference. One man changed the face of the earth over and over and over in history. Why would that be? to give you hope. And why? Why include all of the sordid details? Why do you have to know that David murdered somebody and that he slept with a woman that was not his wife? Why? Why do you have to know that Abraham 
His faith failed. Why do you have to know that He was a coward? So that your failings won't cause you to lose heart. Abraham faced his weakness and yet reasoned God is able to perform the very thing that He's promised. What about this lowly carpenter from Galilee? This man never formally trained in the great yeshivas of his day. What about him? One man obedient to God has bought the human race for himself because he was obedient. One. In fact, he's declared to be the anointed or divinely enabled one. And when we, you were with him, you were called that one. Turn with me to John 17. Let's hear how Jesus, the Christ, the Mashiach, Mashiach is Hebrew for Christ, the Anointed One. If we were going to be biblical and call ourselves something, we call ourselves little Christ, Christians, right? Jesus was not Greek. He was not a Christ. He was a Mashiach. (laughs) You would have to find some way to put an ending on that word, and that's what you would be. That's why the early church called themselves followers of the way and Nazarenes. But most of the world was Greek. And you find out God cannot be put in a box. So He wrote His Scripture down in a way that all of the world could understand it. In John 17, we see Jesus praying. Now, before Jesus goes to a cross and meets a terrible, agonizing death that all of us in this generation have seen a movie about, that will make you cry, it will bring you to your knees, before He's been raised from the dead and declared to be the righteous one, Jesus set some things in order. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, might you write a will? Might you take care of a few details, get your house in order? I bet you would. Well, Jesus did too. We have time to read it, so let's read what Jesus did. After Jesus said this, chapter 17, He looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted Him authority over all people, that He might give eternal life to all those you have given Him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus, and Jesus the Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you. I've shown you. I've taught you. I've unstopped their ears, Lord. To those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believe that You sent Me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those You have given Me, for they are Yours. All I have is Yours, and all You have is Mine, and glory has come to Me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to You. Holy Father, protect them by the power of Your name, the name You gave Me, so that they may be one as we are one so that they may be one as we are one say what can I do 
I am just one person. You are one in the same way that Jesus was one. You are part of a larger entity, the body of God, the anointed one. Jesus said that we were one even as He and the Father were one. And I said, well, that must have just been those apostles, right? And I'm sure that stopped when the age of the apostles died and miracles and tongues and everything else that our dry, dead seminaries teach us stopped. So let's keep reading. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. Who's them? My prayer is not for them alone. Who is them? The believers on the earth during the time of Jesus. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? That's you. When you read the message of the apostles, you fall into this category. That all of them may be one. What's Jesus praying? That we would be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that we may be one, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you have loved me. Before Jesus went to a cross, before He ended His ministry on this planet, He prayed for His disciples then and all of those that would come in the future to realize the power of being in one accord with God. You are never alone. Though you stand as one, Jesus said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Not even until the end of the age. Those are some of the last words recorded in the book of Matthew. What can one person do? You are never just one. You are the anointed one. God's Spirit has set up residence in those who believe for being transformed by His Word. You are never alone. You are never insignificant. You are a participator in the divine nature of God. There's nothing too big for you. No mountain that cannot be moved. No stone, stone that you can't turn over. There is no sin that can hold you back. If you're just like Hezekiah, try. You may not get it right all of the time. That's not really what God's looking for. He said, oh, aim for that. In fact, sin, when you think about it, sin came from a Hebrew word that meant it was a term that you used for a sling stone or for an archer when they missed a little bit. It was aimed in the right direction. It's just the degree of sin was how far in England they picked up this term and used it literally. How far off of the bullseye you were was your degree of sin. Guys, all of us are going to have that. But if you're at least aimed in the right direction, God will credit you with righteousness. What can one man do? One man can save the whole human race. 
One man can inspire a nation towards repentance and healing. One man can save a nation from an army of oppressors. One child can knock down giants. One faithful man can birth a religion that saves the world. One man can bring life to all other men. And you know what? All of those guys did it by the very same Spirit that you have access to here today. There's nothing that is too big for you. There's nothing that is too hard for you. This is why the Bible boldly declares, and you've said it, you just haven't believed it, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Oh, it may look like it's just Eric standing here, but what you don't know is I'm a part of the bigger one. I stand here just as one individual unit, but I've got somebody in me. I'm not here alone. The Spirit's here bearing witness with me. He's testifying that I'm God's. He's anointing the words that I'm saying and He'll empower me to do anything that He's called me to do. That's the perspective that we're to have. Not that one is insignificant. One is all you need if the one stands with God in your workplace. You say, they all grumble. They all complain. It can't be turned around. If you stand up, it can. You say, in my family, they're all going to hell in a handbasket. It'll never change. It's been this way for generations. You stand up like Abraham. You be the launching point for a new generation. You be the one that it changes through. We named this ministry Life-Changing Ministries because we believe with one life changed, you could change the world. It starts somewhere. You just have to decide that it starts with you. Quit thinking of yourself as small. Quit thinking of yourself as insignificant. Stand up and be who God called you to be. Have the courage to be wrong, but be helped by God. Have the courage to boldly declare you're not perfect, you're an object of mercy, and still show yourself to the world. We're not monks. We don't go hide in caves with books. You are held up for all of the world to see that you are an imperfect vessel helped by the perfect God. Don't let your struggles cause you to run from God. Make them cause you to run to God so that somebody can see He looks like one, but He is not alone. And your life will never be the same. I encountered this King of Kings that we call the Anointed One in 1993, and I've never been the same. And most people that have spent time with me have never been the same. Because I'm determined, like Abraham, to be a launching board to birth a new and holy nation. It's what this church is about. Don't ever think of yourself as insignificant because you're one. Your husband, your wife may have left you. You may stand all alone, and yet you're never alone. When you're one, you're part of the anointed one. Y'all stand up and let's pray.